Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we are digging into our archives, and we've pulled out a show that was first heard July 21st, 2014. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. in single file, we're going to be quiet, we're going to be good neighbors, we're going to be good citizens, we're going to keep our indoor voices, yes, just file right down here along the front row, that's it, and Ben, keep your hands to yourself, you know the rule, okay, the second row, right over there, Evelyn, no chewing gum, no chewing gum, thank you, okay. All right, once you're all in place, you may be seated, thank you. Welcome, welcome, this is Bob Bro. welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is the old-time radio program where we play shows that we remember when we were kids, be it on radio or on television, because we're baby boomers. And we not only play old-time radio shows, we play some old... Uh, not old, some music from our era, from the 50s and the 60s. We also uh, tell some stories and just have a good old time. Tonight we have for our lineup an episode of uh, Philip Marlowe. We have a Jack Benny show, and we're going to have an episode of Gunsmoke. So that's what's on tap. So glad you could all make it. You're all looking neat and pretty, and we're going to get started in just a minute. along. My goodness, you guys are all spit and polish. Look at those shiny shoes. 
and the pretty white socks. Oh, my goodness, everybody got all dressed up. Do you remember in school how you used to have to dress up? I don't know what year you graduated. I graduated from high school in 1965, and we had very strict dress codes. And the girls all had to wear skirts or dresses. And uh, the guys had to have belts, and they had to have their shirts tucked in. It was about two or three years after I graduated, and everything kind of just went to All of our teachers said the men wore ties, the women all wore skirts and dresses, and I don't know, it was not a bad thing, although I don't think that girls should have to wear skirts and dresses to school. I, I certainly see no nothing wrong with, uh, uh, you know, wearing slacks, but I will tell you, when you go by the schools these days, they are wearing very short shorts, and that would not have gone over back in our day. I don't know how the guys can concentrate on their schoolwork. It seems like it would be a very big distraction in the classroom, but that's the way it is. School will be starting again in three weeks here in St. Louis. August the 13th is the first day of school. Summer school just ended, but we've had very mild weather, very unusual. In fact, this last week, I don't think it got much over 80 all week and very low humidity and nice breezes, no rain. So it's really nice. I hope it's just as nice where you are. Okay, we're going to start things off with a little private eye action. for a little radio noir, a little private eye action here. Well, we're going to go back to July 1949 for an episode of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. I think it was July the 30th to be exact. Yes, it was. The name of this episode is The Mexican Boat Ride, and it features Mary Ship, Harry Bartell, with a uh, substandard, in my opinion, Mexican accent. Not that I could do it better, but... Uh, he, he he did Mexican accents in a number of shows over the years, and <clears throat> I don't know, I <laughs> I heard better. And uh, Ralph Moody's in this one. I think we're going to back off uh, Harry, uh, or excuse me, Philip Marlowe for a few weeks. I uh, was listening to this one the other night. I, I have a number of shows that I separate out by sound quality. I, I like to play good sound quality uh, shows on my program, and what I did is I had... Several uh, Philip Marlowe's, and this is the last one I had in my current batch that I had uh, listened to the sound quality. So the sound quality is good. Unfortunately, I don't think the story's really good. Maybe that's not for me to say, but that's just my opinion. See what you think. You're going to have to listen real carefully, though, because they really talk fast in this, and the storyline just goes boom, 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 boom. 
but I don't know, it just just felt like it was sort of contrived and rushed, and I just didn't think it was a very good script. But see what you think. So here we go. July 30th, 1949, as originally heard on CBS, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe with Gerald Moore and the Mexican Boat Run. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. This time I took a beating and gave one. The man who lived in the dark was afraid. Someone I never got to meet was murdered and a knife-wielding crab was destroyed. All because a girl who hated the water took a boat ride in old Mexico. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's story, Mexican Boat Ride. It's a rare morning, clear and clean. You know the kind that knocks ten years off your age and makes you taste the sunshine and your orange juice? It was a day to be spent on an open road to someplace new and exciting. But a phone call I'd received had reduced my open road to Carmelita Avenue and nothing more exciting than Beverly Hills. The house I stopped at was one of those you entered through a tunnel of dank, overhanging foliage on a flagstone path grown green with damp moss. A low, thick-walled affair with tiny, barred windows hidden from the sidewalk. I pressed the bell, and a moment later, a sallow housekeeper opened the door with what seemed to be a last ounce of strength. She squinted at my card and beckoned me inside. I followed her down a dusky corridor to a heavy, closed door, where she signaled me to wait. The air in the house smelled thick and stale. When she came out again, she held the door open for me and motioned me into a room full of darkness. It became nearly complete when the door clicked shut behind me. All I could see was the vague form of a man in smoked glasses propped up on a bed across the room. There's a chair beside you, Marlowe, if you care to sit. Oh, thanks. I'm Carl Estabrook, importer. You may have heard of me. No, I don't think so. Well, no matter. <laughs> Marlowe, I have a peculiar problem. I want to know why my wife, Ona, was on a boat day before yesterday off the coast of Mexico. Think you could find out? Well, if that's all you got to go on, I doubt it. No, there's a little more. Huh? Ona and I planned to take vacation together. But when I was confined with this illness, we decided she should go on alone. Oh, then your illness is the reason for the midsummer blackout, huh? Yes. If I expose my eyes to light at any time in the next few weeks, the doctors promise me plenty of pain and virtual blindness. Oh. It's temporary, but tedious to mend. That's why I need a capable man with sharp eyes. To look into what, specifically? The paradox of my wife aboard a boat. Mm -hmm. She has a phobia about them. The mere thought of being on a boat makes her panicky. She drove to Ensenada, Mexico, earlier this week, but believe me, her plans did not include boat rides. Well, tell me, how'd you find out she was on one? Did she write? No, she hasn't written me at all, but that's not unusual for her. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine got back yesterday from a fishing trip down there. 
The day before, his boat passed another with a girl aboard. He got a good look at her and was so sure that it was Ona that he hailed her. The girl turned and ran inside. <laughs> it, it bothered him to the extent that when he got home here, he called me to find out if Ona was in Ensenada. Is that all? And that's all. He didn't get the name of the boat. Look, you want me to go all the way down there just to find out if the girl he saw was Mrs. Estabrook? Right. Uh, what is your fee, Marlowe? Fifty bucks a day, plus expenses. That's the minimum, if I take the job. I don't think I will. When business gets so bad, I have to do divorce work, I'll quit and write my memoirs. No, I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. No, no, sit down, Marlowe. Owen and I have had our share of difficulties, true. She's quite a few years younger than I, and used to be a dancer. But, generally speaking, we're happy. Specifically what? I'm worried about her. Here. There's money in this envelope and a recent photograph of my wife. And there's more of both if the need arises. Uh, incidentally, what kind of a day is it outside? Gorgeous. Well, then you can drive. It's only 250 miles. Yeah. By the way, how has the importing business been lately, uh, legitimately speaking? You do have a suspicious mind, don't you? Only when the situation calls for it, and this does. However, I can understand an imagination working overtime here in the dark, Mr. Estabrook. So I'll take your money and go on down to Ensenada and see if anything is wrong. But look, I'm giving you notice beforehand. If it turns out to be family laundry and nothing more, I drop it. You're a reputable man. Just see that I get my money's worth, Marlowe, and you can keep the change. I'll expect to hear from you. When my eyes adjusted to the dazzling glare outside... I looked in the envelope and picture of an impish, dark-haired woman and five $100 bills. For the first time, I realized what Estabrook had meant by keep the change. But it didn't help my attitude even a little. By two o'clock, I was on the road south. A late lunch in La Jolla with an old friend, a routine baggage inspection at the border. And then 70 twisting miles of lonely road brought me to Ensenada. Just as the Mexican sun dropped into the sea. I drove past the piers and canneries at the edge of town. And then along the curving shore to the only hotel elegant enough to meet the demands of the woman I figured on Estabrook to be. After I'd gotten a room and cleaned up, I went to the desk and asked for her. She was registered, had number 74, and at the moment was out on the patio. <laughs> All of which sounded ridiculously normal. And I thought again of an imagination at work in a dark room back in L.A. I thanked the clerk in crippled Spanish and turned in time to catch the end of a long, cold stare from a pair of frog-like eyes that bulged out of an otherwise handsome head on a man in a gray gabardine suit. I didn't think my language had been that bad. But when Popeye followed me out onto the patio, I wasn't too sure. There was no mistaking Ona Estabrook. She sat alone at a table in the far corner, a tall, minted gin drink in front of her. So I put on my best tourist-type smile and walked over. Well, Ona Estabrook, this is a pleasure. Enjoying your visit? What? Yes, very much, but I, I don't think I... Know me? Oh, of course, you wouldn't remember. My name's Marlowe, Philip Marlowe. No, no, I'm sorry, Mr. Marlowe, but you I... You were a really... dancer, weren't you, before your marriage, I mean? Oh, yes, I was a dancer, but you, you'll have to excuse me now. I, I, I'm expecting a friend. I hope oh, you don't mind. Oh, well, just one thing then, Mrs. Estabrook. Would you mind telling me why you were out on a boat day before yesterday? A boat? Mm-hmm. Why do you ask that? Because you hate boats. You have a phobia about them. And yet you were seen aboard one just two days ago. How come? Well, I... Oh, clumsy of me. I've spilled the drink all over my skirt. Excuse me. I'll have to change. That 
maneuver was as subtle as a bulldozer at work. When she spilled her drink, it was done desperately and fear sent her running for the exit. I turned to follow her as she left the lighted patio and headed down a dark arcade. But a gray gabardine suit and a pair of Popeyes slid out of a chair and beat me to it. I waited until their footsteps faded, which said they turned a corner. Then I started after them. It was strictly follow the leader, but I didn't realize how many were playing the game until a knife point stung at the skin at the soft part of the back about kidney high. Stop, senor, and don't cry out. Don't even say ouch. I turned and saw a mottled red face ugly on a squat long-arm body. The ivory-handled knife in his hand could have clipped my spine in one easy thrust. You got a car here, senor? Come on, I speak English good. You got a car? Yeah, I got a car. What's it to you? I am Hayaba, the crab. It's lots to me. What's Let's your pitch, go. Buster? Come on, tell me. <laughs> Martinez says for me to keep a sharp eye on things, to be sure something is not wrong. It looks to me like something is wrong with you, senor. Who's Martinez? <laughs> you going to play possum, senor? <laughs> uh, this one is your car, huh? All right. Yeah. Okay. I take first your uh, one. Uh, now, please to get in. You gonna drive. Believe it or not, you're making a big mistake, Krabby. Besides, what if I don't want to drive? Oh, you better want to drive, gringo. <laughs> or I kill you right here. Go on, drive. Handle Stop here. And now we get out. Ah, it's nice and quiet here on the beach, no? Walk over there to that old adobe wall. We're going to have a talk there. It's going to be dull, Buster. We've got nothing in common. Please, senor, don't make it hard on me. I don't know why you got to come and mix everything up again when time is running out. Why did you come? I needed new haraches. Mm, look, senor, you think I'm ugly? You're no beauty crab, let's face it. See, and I can act even uglier. Maybe I could go on the radio and make a big hit, no? <laughs> or maybe I make the big hit on your face. Oh! Uh, don't try something, senor. Or I kill you with your own gun. Now, the truth. You spoke to the senora about the boat. Why? I forget. Oh! Who are you, senor? A private detective named Marlowe. Oh, a private detective? Who are you working for, Dolph Bentley? I never heard of Dolph Bentley. Who's he? You're lying. The senora knows him. I heard her say Dolph Bentley won't make it tonight. Yeah, he's lucky. See, I tell you something else. He better not make it. Martinez is going to do business with one man only tonight. Now, you want to say something? No? Then I'll say it. You take what's going to be left of your face, Bento, <laughs> Senor Bentley, until I get out of Ensenada and don't come back. <laughs> Understand? Ah! Oh! Wait a minute. Come on, wake up, wake up. Wait, stop the crap. Come on. Who are you? Oh, it's you. I'll kill you. Wait, wait, wait. Take it easy, will you? You're in good hands now, Marlo. I'm a fellow American. (laughs) You know, you're pretty lucky, you know that? I am? Oh, sure, yeah. Where'd my pal go? I am? Oh, I chased him off. You know, it's a wonder he didn't put a knife in you. These uh, fellows are mean with knives. This guy was no slouch with a gun butt, either. Hey, hmm? where'd you come from, anyway? Oh, down the beach a ways. I just finished oh. working on my boat, and I was taking a walk, oh. and I heard the commotion came over to see about it. 
This guy was beating you up, so I yelled and started for him, but he ran. Oh, is that right? Mm-hmm. I'm glad somebody stopped him. Thanks very much, Mr. De... Roman. Oh. Uh, Lou Roman's my name. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm pleased to meet you, Mono. Thanks. You know me? Uh, well, yes, I, I took the liberty of looking in your wallet to see that the devil had robbed you. Oh. It doesn't seem so, though. Yeah, because I got here just in time. You're a private investigator, I see. Hey, you working on a case now? It's debatable. So far, the case is working on me. I'd like to find a guy named Dolph Bentley, though. Dolph Bentley? Yeah, yeah. Guy who beat me up had the idea that I was... Ooh. I was hired by Dolph Bentley. Did you ever hear of him? No. No, and I come down here every year to fish, too. Uh Know a lot of folks around here, but I never heard of that one before. Uh, Why are you after him? Well, he's, he's tied up in some way to the crab who seems to work with another guy named Martinez who... In turn, is going to do some business of some kind tonight with somebody other than Dolph Bentley. I don't know. And it's, it's all connected for some screwy reason with a, with a woman who took a boat ride the day before yesterday. Well, uh, what about that? Uh, the woman being on a boat, I mean. Oh, well, she can't stand boats. She's afraid of... Oh, my head. Oh, wait, wait. Here. Thanks. I better get you some first aid right yeah, away. That's a good idea. Holy smoke, my car. Man, I'll relax, huh? relax. It's right over there. Uh, come on, let me help you up. All right, easy oh. now, easy. Ooh. That's it now. I'll drive you. Uh, where are you staying? Uh, at the hotel, huh? Yeah, yeah. Oh, Thanks, good. Roman. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm still busy. Uh, easy, I got you. I, I got to get back there. I got to find that girl, because she's up to her hair doing a very nasty mess. Uh, listen, Marlo. Huh? If I can help in any way, let me know, will you? <laughs> you know, us Americans have to stick together in a place like this. Right? That's it. Come on, let's go. Lou Roman, the hail fellow, was indeed well met. He found my gun and drove me back to the hotel. A long hour had gone by since Owen Astabrook had run from the patio, followed by the pop-eyed character in the gabardine suit. I tried a room, checked with the desk again, and from there spent 30 minutes peering into corners and balconies and getting nothing but indignant glares from Mexican lovers. So I left the building and started through the grounds. I worked my way from the stables up into a secluded garden, deserted by all but a marble statue of Montezuma, who, when I passed him, groaned. In the dark at my feet lay Haiba the crab, his mottled face twisted into a tortured grin of agony. And sticking straight up just above his belt buckle was the white ivory handle of his own knife. Crab! Crab, who was it? Who got you? Oh, senor, I I am sorry what I did. Never mind that. Who did this? Do you know? Oh, see, see. It don't Bentley. Now get a doctor. No, no, you, senor. I uh, tell Martinez that Dolph Bentley is... Crab. Yeah. Even as the life trickled out of the ugly little man called Haiba, and his face, which had been knotted tight in pain, went slowly limp and he was still. I knew that I'd have to get next to Dolph Bentley before the importance of Ona Estabrook aboard a fishing boat off Ensenada would make any sense. Also, I knew that there was a good chance that said Mr. Bentley and the gentleman in Greg Aberdeen, known to me as Popeyes, were one and the same. So I started back for the hotel. But halfway there, I stopped at the sight of a figure ahead scampering toward an all-alone taxi parked near the main entrance. It was Ona Estabrook. I took off after her when she was in the cab and away before I could get close enough to do any good. I tried the next best thing, which was the sombrero doorman nearby, who I figured might have heard the address she'd given the driver. 
Yeah, but what I didn't figure was that the doorman might not habla much English. The Signore Esterbrook. Uh, si, senor. Her enters libre a minute ago. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I know that. Now, look. Where did her go? Which way in the libre? Libre. Uh-huh. Oh, un momento, senor. Libre, libre. Oh, no, no. Viene, senor. No, look. Pronto. Amigo, I, I don't want a taxi. I don't, no libre. No libre. None whatsoever. Ah. Now, please, come here. Let's, let's back it up a little, huh? Senora Estabrook in Libre, right? Si, senor. Okay. Now, where did she go? What direction? Uh, que direction? Oh, I already comprendo. Uh-huh. The senor. Yeah, the senora. Que direction? Comprendo? Si, senor. Senora Estabrook go to the pier, the, the fishing pier. Which one? Which fishing pier? Oh, Kual Pier. Uh, the small pier, senor. Uh-huh. The little one near the big cannery. The fishes cannery, That's senor. all I want to know. Gracias, amigo, and... Uh-oh. Senor? Senor, what are you seeing? I'm not sure. But even if I were, I wouldn't be able to explain it to you. Buenas noches, pal. Thanks a lot. I had been seeing at the silhouette of a man huddled close to the ground and slinking out from a hotel along a high hedge that led back toward the statue in the body of Aiba, a man who I knew could be the elusive Popeyes. I followed the walk that was close into the hotel until I was on a line with the hedge, Then I started after him fast. I still had a good two yards to go when he heard me and pivoted, so I swung first! Oh! Why, you dirty... Roman, wait a minute, hold it. Gee, it's me, Marlo, I'm sorry. Oh! Holy smoke, I... I thought you were someone else. Oh, gargantua, maybe? Oh, brother. Oh, I'm sorry. What'd you hit me with, I have everything I had. I figured you were Dolph Bentley, and as such, Roman, I didn't want you to get away with murder, literally. Murder? Hey, not that girl you mentioned, Marlowe. Oh, Estabrook? Huh? No, no, no. The corpse is that item you sigged away from me over in those ruins. Somebody got to him with his own knife there near the statue. Aha, uh-huh, then I was right. I did see someone move over what? near there. Well, yeah, a couple of minutes ago, Marlowe. I was on the balcony outside of my room. It faces the garden here, you see. And when I saw you run for the main entrance, I had a feeling that you might be in trouble again, so I came on down here. Well, then what happened? Well, I was about to call out to you when I heard some noise over there near the statue. It was a man. He was running away fast, heading toward those stables. A man wearing gabardine, maybe tan, maybe gray. Maybe Dolph Bentley. Thanks, Roman. You've been a big help. When you get back to the hotel, tell him about the dead man, will you? I gotta run. The stable was a robust left field as pegged to home plate from where we'd been standing. So by the time I got there, I was out of breath and facing nothing more important than thick darkness. A lot of hay and a couple of horses who couldn't sleep nights talking things over until I moved around a corner past the stalls and close to the half-open door of a shack, marked both cabina telefono and the equivalent in English that showed a single unshaded light, and under that a man standing alone next to a telephone, writing something on the back of an envelope. He was wearing a gray gabardine suit, and when he lifted his Popeyes from the paper in front of him, Mm. I knew the next move had to be mine, 38 and all. Let it go, Buster. Keep your hands close to your sides. Just as you say, senor. Be a fool not to obey you. You're so right, a dead fool. So keep that in mind while we chat, won't you, Mr. Bentley? Bentley? Uh Uh-huh. How did you find out who I am? It was easy. All I had to do was listen to a dying man's last two words when I asked him to name his murderer. He said, Dolph Bentley, any comment? Yes. You know a lot, senor. Don't resent it, friend. I learned it all the hard way. Don't move, Bentley. I was only changing my position, senor. Which will be prone if you try it again. Now, what do you know about this whole mess and an American girl named Ona Estabrook, who I figure is no mobster? Nothing, senor. You're a liar, Bentley. 
Which brings me to the point. One, why the pressure on the girl, and two, what's so important about her taking a ride on a fishing boat? Come on, brother, it's getting late for a murderer. Start talking straight the first time out. All right. I'll start with a question. Senor, how does all this concern you? You gain a percentage if the smugglers are not interfered with, perhaps? We were talking about the girl, remember? Yes, I remember. But you see, senor, I have little to offer on that score. How little? A single observation. In your country, senor, people who do not mind their own business are called nosy. Here in Mexico, we have another term. Asno. Which means what? Jackass, senor. Who, unlike the cat, cannot see in the dark. But can try his best, Bentley. No gun, senor. Okay, amigo, no gun, but this. Asno. When Bentley met the floor and went out cold, I sagged to one knee. Stayed that way until the air rushing into my lungs quit sounding like sandpaper over a drumhead. Then I got back to my feet and turned on a bracket lamp on the other side of the room. I opened Bentley's jacket, slipped his 32 automatic out of its shoulder holster, emptied the clip and... Stopped dead at the shimmer of light dancing on polished silver that I hadn't expected. It was a badge. Below his shoulder holster and pinned to his vest. Republic of Mexico, Department of Customs, Captain! I made a dive for the envelope near the telephone. On the back there was writing in thick pencil, which I finally figured to mean fishing pier near Cannery, 2 a.m. Inside, nothing. On the front, further proof that I'd never met Mr. Dolph Metley at all, but instead it tangled hard-like with one Captain Juan Descartos intelligence section custom building, Mexico City, Mexico. While trying to revive Captain Descartos, the truth rammed into my mind. Owner Estabrook had rushed off for the pier near the cannery that Captain Descartos had noted is a good place to be at 2 o'clock in the morning, which was less than 20 minutes away, and a great time for me to get to my car and the pier. You're a bright boy, thanks. Welcome. Do you like the job on the car, senor? I think it shines well for the eight pesos you owe me. Uh, nobody asked you to bother, Junior, but I'll see you later. Right now I gotta run, huh? For eight pesos, one dollar you can write, senor. I'll replace the distributor cap. What? Come here, you. But, but senor, it was very dirty all over. The inside, too. The steering wheel, black as can be. Look, I ruined my best rag cleaning That's it. That's tough. Now give me that distributor cap or you'll be the saddest pair of dark eyes between here and the Panama Canal. Senor! Oh, never mind. Here. You pay me the dollar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just put the cap back where it belongs. Quick, will you? I'm in a hurry. Well, come on. Let's go, let's go, let's go. The precious 60 seconds ticked off before I was out of the parking lot and driving fast toward the fishing pier near the cannery where I knew I was finally going to get next to Dolph Bentley and if I made it in time, prevent another murder. But when I screeched to a stop away from the pier, piled out of my car and ran the length of the oil-soaked planking to where a single boat was making ready to cast off, I saw one of the two persons aboard the small catch was Ona Estabrook. The other was Lou Roman, haughty American fisherman. When I stepped aboard, our hunch hit me right between the eyes. I pulled my gun and pointed it an inch above his waist. What are you doing here, Marlo? I might ask you the same question, Roman, or do I call you Bentley from here on out? Molly, you know, now he can't kill me. Now I don't have to be afraid of him anymore. Oh, 
Marlow, thank goodness you got here in time. Yeah, hooray. The Marines have landed in the form of a private eye. Cut it out, Bentley, and don't move. Oh, no, what do you mean about being afraid? What's your connection with this fisherman here? Well, it was an accident, Marlow. A mix-up in our baggage. Lou Roman and I both happened to stop for customs inspection at the border at the same time, and our suitcases were switched. I didn't notice it at the time, but when I got to the hotel, I discovered the mistake and went to Roman's room to correct it. But instead, you found Bentley here posing as Roman, right? Yes. He killed him, Milo. He told me he did. That's a dirty lie. Roman's all right. He's in Chicago. No, he's not. He's dead. You killed him. Someplace between here and Tijuana, Milo. He said I'd get the same treatment if I opened my mouth. Then he's the one who forced you to go out on that boat yesterday. Stay back, Bentley. So that people wouldn't be suspicious, he made me appear at the hotel, in the patio there, at the restaurant. Why didn't you run? I couldn't. He wasn't around. Another man was. A horrible man with large eyes that never left me. Yeah. So why don't you drop it, Marlowe? No sail, Bentley. You see, I know that the horrible man with the large eyes can't be one of your henchmen. His badge says so. What? Badge? He's an officer, Marlowe? Yeah, captain owner. Give up, Bentley? You had better. There are too many men ready to take you. Descados. <laughs> Where'd you come from? Oh, I have been here quite a while. But your story was so interesting, I just couldn't interrupt. Marlo took you for Dolph Bentley, Captain Descartes. You played along because you didn't know who he was, is that it? Yes, senora, and I did not find out until I heard Bentley call Marlo a private eye. <laughs> You're not mad at me, Captain, huh? Even though I bungled your plan to capture Martinez, and uh, not to mention our little meeting at the stables. <laughs> uh, senor, do not say that you bungled the job of catching Martinez. It was more a matter of uh, priority. Uh, por favor, senora, the tacos. Of course, here you are. Gracias. You see, Senor Marlowe, I am certain that one day I will catch Martinez, but not at the cost of letting a murderer kill again. Hmm. But, Senor Marlowe, there is one thing that puzzles me. The murder of the one known as Haiba. Oh, Martinez henchman. Well, you see, Captain, he knew that a man named Dolph Bentley was mixed up in this because he'd overheard Ona and her keeper, then called Lou Roman, talking about him. He wanted to know more. Also, he couldn't figure who I was. So he beat you up? Correct. Bentley, of course, only saved my life because... It was an easy way to find out just how much Haiba did know, after which he got to him. Enough? Not quite, senor. There is still one thing. How did you know that Lou Roman was actually Bentley? On a hunch, Captain. And by positive identification from you, Ono, when we were on the boat. But uh, now it's my turn. I got a question for you, honey. Have you had enough vacation? Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, Marlowe, I wired my husband just before we came in to eat. Oh. I... I said the change did in your world of good. Be home tomorrow to stay. Love always. Well, Captain, will you pass the tacos, please? They're, they're awfully good, really. It was late the next afternoon, and owner Estabrook was already gone when I checked out of the hotel. Said goodbye to Captain Dos Catos. Adios, amigo and headed north for the border, where two hours later I stopped for customs inspection of my baggage. It was dark, and I was only 50 miles from Los Angeles before I realized exactly what that inspection had meant, because it was then, for the first time, that I noticed the little cowhide suitcase on the seat next to me, which should have been mine, was tagged differently. The name and address of a man who lived in Long Beach, California. <laughs> I got there, I kept driving. I knew I could ship it to him and ask for mine in exchange when I got home. Oh, yes. I'd had just about enough for a while. 
The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Donnelly, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Mary Shipp, Harry Bartell, Nestor Piva, Bill Boucher, Ralph Moody, Bill Shaw, and Jerry Farber. The special music is written by Richard Aron. Be sure and be with us next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with death on my doorstep and got worse when I lied to a sympathetic bull, was pistol-whipped by a gorilla with dimples and fought with a kitten on the keys. And it might have gone on that way all night if I hadn't been helped by the king of the beasts. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Well, what did you think? What was your opinion? From July 30th, 1949, that was The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, The Mexican Boat Ride, with Gerald Moore and uh, Harry Bartell, Ralph Moody. Just, uh, that one was kind of hard for me to follow, but maybe you... What's that, Chester? Chester liked it. All right, well, there you go. Chester liked it, maybe you liked it too. Uh... We're going to back off, like I said, Philip Marlowe for a few weeks. He'll he'll be back. I'll I'll grab some more out of the file, but I'll try to try to uh, be a little more selective in the weeks ahead. But I I really like the show, and I like the feel of it. I love Gerald Moore in the role in the uh, role, but sometimes the scripts are just. But you know, it must have been hard to do a a mystery like that in twenty four minutes or whatever it was. With you know, after you take the commercials out, not a lot of time. All right, how about a little music? I have uh, played in the past songs that I bought even as a kid, a little kid. I think I probably bought my first record when I was in fifth grade or something like that. Maybe even younger than that. They were 99 cents, I remember, at the Bixby Knowles Music Shop. And you could actually go in there and listen to the songs uh, as I recall, at Bixby Knowles, they would put them on a turntable and you could put on earphones and listen to them. Wallach's Music City, which was a big deal. There was one on the corner of Sunset and Vine, and the other one was in Lakewood Center. And if you lived in the L.A. area, you know that Wallach's Music City used to have these great commercials. And it would be people like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and a number of huge, huge uh, recording artists of the era. I'm talking about the 50s. And they would come on with this singing, this little jingle. They'd say, it's Music City, Sunset and Vine. And then a cartoon character, usually a Disney cartoon character, would come on and say, and in Lakewood Center, too. Like it'd be, ha-ha, this is Mickey Mouse. And don't forget Lakewood Center, too. And that's Lakewood Center was in Long Beach. So we had a Wallach's Music City. And they used to have about 10 booths. And all the records they had out for sale were demo copies. So you could take the records into the booths and listen to records pretty much all night. They didn't really care as long as there wasn't people waiting. And then when you wanted to buy one, you would take it to the counter and they would give you, give you a new wrapped one and the demo would go back. 
So that's probably where I bought one of my first records. This is one of the first records I bought. And it's because I was in love with the singer. And I was very young, I remember, because I saw this uh, on the movie screen in 19, what was it, 57, 57, 58? So I was about nine years old, 10 years old. This became Debbie Reynolds' theme song. But I actually bought this record, and I used to play it all the time. And it was one of those that I didn't want to even, in elementary school, tell my buddies that I was in love with Tammy. From Tammy and the Bachelor, here's Debbie Reynolds singing Tammy. Cottonwoods whispering above Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love The old hootie owl, hootie who's to the dove Tammy, Tammy, Tammy's in love Does my lover feel what I feel? When he comes near, my heart beats so joyfully You'd think that he could hear Wish I knew if he knew what I'm dreaming of Tammy, Tammy, Tammy singing the theme song from Tammy and the Bachelor, which was the original Tammy film and the only one that she starred in. Do you remember uh, who else was in that film? Who played the Bachelor? 
Believe it or not, it was a young Leslie Nielsen. And that was before he became a comedic actor. He was sort of a serious romantic lead back in the uh, 50s. And Walter Brennan was in it, at least in the beginning of the film. Tammy was a young gal that was being raised in the bayou by her granddad, Walter Brennan, who was a moonshiner. And one day an airplane, a little light plane, crashed in the river or the swamp there right near their home, and Leslie Nielsen was the pilot. And Walter Brennan and Tammy got him out of the plane and nursed him back to health. And it ended up that he was a very rich individual that lived on a large southern plantation. When Walter Brennan got arrested for moonshine and Tammy was underage, and she was sent to live with uh, Leslie Nielsen's family, he was still living at home. His mother, I remember, was Mildred Natwick, great character actress who I once saw in, uh, in person on Broadway in a production of Our Town. And really, the storyline was a lot like... Uh, Sound of Music, how she came in here as this sort of country girl and with her natural common sense, the whole family fell in love with her. And of course, Leslie Nielsen ended up dumping his really rich, rich girlfriend who was Eleanor Parker, I think, and uh, going with Tammy. Well, anyway, I did. I bought that record when I was a kid. One of the first records I ever bought, I bought it at Wallach's Music City. And uh, what's that, Chester? Chester signaling to me. You don't. Did you really? <laughs> I was telling you about the jingle ahead of time. Chester thinks he has it, has a copy of one of the jingles. Well, let's play it. Go ahead, play it. Hi there, everybody. This is Ella Fitzgerald saying, it's Music City. Thank you very much, Ella. This is Clyde Wallach. Visit Music City early for the big, wonderful gift selection of stereotypes. Very Good, Chester. That's it. Ella Fitzgerald. I told you there was big stars. Now, later on or before that, whenever they used to, where you heard that musical refrain, she goes, it's Music City. And then the band goes, dun, 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 dun. They used to say, at Sunset and Vine. And then the cartoon character would come in later and say, hey, this is Mickey Mouse. Don't forget Lakewood Center, too. Something like that. Hmm. Boy, that's, that brings back a memory. Thank you very much for that. Music City. That hasn't been there for a long time. Uh, it was uh, right there across the street from NBC and from uh, CBS was right down the street. They actually call that Radio City, uh, that area right there at Sunset and Vine. Something familiar. Something familiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Ah! Situation, no complications, nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, comedy tonight. <laughs> All right, it's time for a little comedy corner, and tonight we're going once again to visit Jack Benny. This one tonight that we're listening to was originally broadcast on April the 6th in 1950. 
By the way, I have some apologies to make because I misspoke on a couple of things last week, our last show. If you recall, we played an episode where Jack was in New York and it was uh, supposed to be the morning before his first television show. All right, a couple errors I made. One, I I said that he was on NBC. He had already moved to CBS in 1950. He moved to CBS from NBC in 1949. This is according to Larry and John Gassman. I think Larry is the one that actually answered the question. And I thank you. Uh, Walden Hughes uh, also contributed to this. In the Benny Show, I mentioned that this was a repeat of a script that they had done in 1949 recounting the first time that Jack met uh, the Colemans. Well, in actuality, that was just a typo. That show originally was broadcast in 1945. I said 1949. It was 1945, which makes more sense. All right, that was the second mistake I made. The other thing is I, I wondered if it was common for them to repeat scripts because if you recall the second half of the show we listened to last week, was almost identical script from that 1945 show. The way they set this up is there was a reporter asking Jack how he first met the Colemans, and he was recalling that incident that was uh, originally done in 1945. Okay, Larry said that it was not uncommon. He could think of three or four occasions where they did that. But he did say the radio show that we heard, which uh, was originally broadcast the day after Jack's premiere episode, which came from New York, the show that we listened to had actually been recorded in Los Angeles the week before. And so that is why the Colemans were on it. Then we had another question, too, about Michael Barrett, uh, an actress who was very popular in radio uh, back then. She was on a couple of the shows we listened to last week. Walden thought maybe she was married to Tony Barrett, who was another actor that was uh, in a lot of the shows, the L.A.-based radio shows from the 50s. But I think it was Larry said that that was not the case. Although they never met Michael, they understand that they were not married. And they don't really know much about Michael Barrett. I thought, sure, that I was going to find out that, uh, you know, she spends winters uh, in their guest room, escaping the cold of Minnesota or something. But nope. Never never met Michael Barrett, so that's still a little bit of a mystery. All right, we've got some show notes on this one, but I'm not going to... We'll talk about them afterwards because I've been talking too long here. I will say this, though. On, on this episode, Jack goes down to the vault in the basement, and this is where we got the idea for some of the sound effects at the beginning of our shows. The guard down there that's guarding his vault asks for the password, and he says it is R-A-G-G-M-O-P-P. I just wanted to tell you that ahead of time. I'll tell you what's significant about that if you don't already know uh, on the other side of the show. This is the Jack Benny Show, and this episode is commonly referred to as Jack Gets His House Painted. By the way, this one has Frankie Fontaine in it, and Frankie Fontaine cracked Benny up. You'll see. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. Six table. The Lucky Strike Program, starring Jack Benny, with Barry Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson.
Ladies and gentlemen, spring is here. And last night, as a romantic moon smiled down on Beverly Hills, our little star was sitting alone in his den by an open window. Ah, look at that moon. Smell those orange blossoms. Now I know what they mean when they say, in the spring, a young man's fancy lightly turns to thoughts of love. Gosh, most of my friends are married and I'm... Hello? Hello, Jack. This is Mary. Oh, Mary. Mary, how are you, Mary? Well, I'm fine, Jack, and I... Well, well, I... Jack, I hope I didn't disturb you. No, no, Mary, I... Just sitting here in the den thinking. Well, that's funny. I've been... Well, I've been thinking, too. That's funny. That's what I've been doing. <laughs> thinking. Well, look, Jack. Well, uh... Well, we've known each other for a long time, and... Well, it's spring, and... Uh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> well, I know it isn't my place to say it, but, uh... Well, what's the difference which one of us says it? It's spring. <laughs> All right. All right, I'll say it. Jack. Yes? Why don't you get your house painted? <laughs> hmm. That's what happened last night. And this morning. I'll get it, Rochester. Good morning, Jack. Mary, what are you doing here so early? And who's this man with you? He's the painter. The painter? But, Mary, I didn't have a chance to think it over. After all... Mr. Hawkins, this is Jack Benny. Hi, Herb. <laughs> what? Uh, I've certainly heard a lot about you. Shake. Hmm. Sorry, I forgot I was holding a wet paintbrush. <laughs> Mary. I took him off another job to come here. Why'd you have to bring him so early? I haven't even had my breakfast yet. Go right ahead. I won't disturb it all. I'll just come right in and... Ouch, my foot. Oops, dropped my ladder. <laughs> well, don't just stand there. Pick it up. Okay, dokie. Hold this. Give it to me by the handle. <laughs> Heaven's sake. Oh, boss, your coffee's getting cold. Okay, Rochester. Say, Dal, would you like to have breakfast with me? Don't mind if I do. <laughs> I'm talking to Miss Livingston. Mary, would you like breakfast? I wouldn't mind some coffee. While you're having your breakfast, I'll go through the room and then give you an estimate. Good, good. My, what a lovely piano. Not with a paintbrush. <laughs> Mary, what kind Jack, of... Jack, it was an accident. Come on in the kitchen, have your breakfast. Okay, okay. Rochester, uh, put an extra cup on the table. Oh, hello, Miss Livingston. Good morning, Rochester. Oh, you're just in time. I made a nice batch of pancakes. Well, I was only going to have a cup of coffee, but since you have pancakes, I... Rochester, what's that thing you just put on the plate? A hypodermic needle. A hypodermic needle? What's in it? Syrup. <laughs> Syrup? In this house, we don't pour it on with Canada's hands. We inject it. Now, stop making things up. Mary, this thing that looks like a hypodermic needle is really a cake decorator, and it's filled with whipped cream. 
No, it comes in handy when you want to write happy birthday or Merry Christmas. Well, what's it doing on the breakfast table? Mr. Billy not only wants his pancakes size of a dollar, but I got to write E Pluribus Unum on every one of them. <laughs> Rochester. Putting the feathers on the eagle is murder. <laughs> Rochester, be quiet. You know, Jack, the way Rochester's got those pancakes fixed up, they do look like dollars. Yeah. Say, Mary, <laughs> you want to hear something funny? What? Yesterday when I was shopping, I thought I'd have a little fun, so I tried to pass one of them at the meat market. <laughs> and what happened? Well, the butcher bit it to see if it was good. It was good, so he ate it. <laughs> now, come on, let's go... Hey, Ruth! Huh? I looked at both your upstairs bedrooms and they look nice and green Oh, have you seen the bathroom? No, I haven't been outside yet <laughs> Outside? Oh, I forgot I was in the city Well, go upstairs and look at it Okay, Rube, see you later I wish you wouldn't keep calling me Rube all the time Mary, Mary, how in the world can you bring a strange painter you know nothing about and expect oh, me... Oh, wait a minute, Jack. Mr. Hawkins isn't a stranger. He's an old friend of my family. It was on account of him that my sister Bay broke her leg. You mean he broke... Oh, it wasn't his fault. Papa hired him to do some painting. Uh -huh. And when Mr. Hawkins put the ladder up against the house, yeah. Babe thought it was an elopement and stepped out the window. <laughs> No. Yeah. <laughs> she landed with her head in a bucket of paint, and for two years she was known as the girl with the green hair. Mary, while you were off last week, did you write that routine? <laughs> you know, if you did, it's the last time that you... Come in. Oh, it's Don in the Sportsman Quartet. Hello, boys. Mm. Hiya, Don. How are you? Oh, all right, all right, I guess. Don. <laughs> Don, what's the matter? Oh, I'd rather not talk about it. Now, wait a minute, Don. I know something's bothering you. Now, what is it? Well, I... Come on, Don. What is it? Well, Jack, a terrible thing happened to me this morning. I stepped on the bathroom scale and I weighed 186 pounds. Well... <laughs> well, Don, that should have made you happy. That's 90 pounds less than you ever weighed. Oh, I was happy. I was thrilled. But then I discovered something. Oh, your bathroom scale was wrong? No, my stomach was resting on the wash basin. <laughs> Don. Look, he likes it. Don. Did you come over here just to tell me that joke? <laughs> yes, Jack, I thought it was very funny. <laughs> oh, you did, eh? Well, Don, there's an old Chinese proverb that says, announcer who make joke about stomach and basin soon washed up. <laughs> Another joke like that and I'll be washed up. <laughs> My writers own an oil well. I can't do anything with it. <laughs> Now, what did you come over for, Don? Well, Jack, I brought the quartet with me because they have an idea for a commercial and they want you to hear it. Well, I'm glad you did, Don, because we haven't got the commercial set for the show. Now, what... Hey, Rube! 
<laughs> Just a minute. Now, what is it, Mr. Hawkins? Just look in the kitchen, and to paint the walls and the ceiling will come to $12. But I'll only charge you 10 Why? I ate two pancakes. <laughs> good, good. Now, Don, what's this idea the boys have for a commercial? Well, Jack, every year we do something appropriate for the season. Uh-huh. And so far this year, we haven't done anything about spring. Say, that's right, Don. It is spring. You know, as a matter of fact, last night I was sitting in my den by an open window, and I was looking up at the romantic moon and smelling the fragrance of orange blossoms, when all of a sudden the phone rang. And what happened? What happened? I'm having my house painted. <laughs> well, Don, if the boys... <laughs> if the boys have something... I better get an oil welt myself. <laughs> Well, Don, if the boys have something good for spring, I think it'll be good for the show Sunday. Let's hear it now. Okay, take it, boys. <laughs> the flowers that bloom in the spring, tra-la, the flowers that bloom in the spring. As we merrily dance and we sing, tra-la, we welcome the hope that they bring, tra-la, of a summer of roses and wine, of a summer of roses and wine. But it's not of the flowers that we want to sing Cause they can't compare with this message we bring <laughs> Tobacco that grows in the spring, tra-la Tobacco that grows in the spring It grows in Kentucky, tra-la, tra-la It's put in a lucky tra-la, tra-la That is why there is never a rut Puff, there's never a puff that is rough. From our swell on the show. I thought you'd like it, Jack. Well, we've got to be running along now. Okay, Don. See you later. You know, Mary, I was just thinking of something. I hope this fellow doesn't charge me too much for painting the house. I mean, I don't want to go to a lot Oh, of... for heaven's sake, Jack. You only have your house painted every five or six years. Why be so cheap? Cheap? Mary, I'm not cheap, and I resent your saying that. What? You may not know it, but last week a fellow stopped me on the street, asked me for a dime for a cup of coffee, and I gave him 50 cents. <laughs> there they go again. Uh, what was that? I'll explain it to you later. Every time I... Oh, I'll get it. Oh, hello, Dennis. Hello, Mary. Uh, hi, kid. Hello, Mr. Benny. Can I use your phone? The phone? Sure, kid, sure. Go ahead. Hello? Now, listen, you. I've warned you before, and this is the last time. This town ain't big enough for both of us, see? I'm giving you 24 hours to get out, or you'll wind up at the bottom of the river in a barrel of cement. So get out of town, punk, and stay out. <laughs> Dennis, who are you talking to? 
Humphrey Bogart, I drive nuts. <laughs> what? Dennis, why do you keep calling Humphrey Bogart and telling him to get out of town? I'm in love with Lauren Bacall. Dennis, I don't care who you're in love with. Don't you ever do that again. Bogart may trace the call and find out it came from here, and he'd come over and punch me in the nose. What's the matter, you chicken? <laughs> chicken? Dennis? Dennis? What's come over you lately? I don't know, but if it changes my voice, I'll lose two shows. <laughs> You came over here to use my phone You used it I'm too busy to listen to your silly talk So why don't you go home? Well, don't you want to hear the song I'm going to do on the program first? Well, all right, let me hear it But as soon as you do the song Hmm, there's someone at the back door Oh, Rochester! Rochester! Oh, well I'll answer it myself The flowers that bloom in the spring Tra-la The flowers that bloom in the spring Tra-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la-la Yes? Excuse me, mister. Could you help a fella out? What? I ain't had nothing to eat since yesterday. Say, wait a minute. You look familiar to me. Huh? Did you stop me last week on Vine Street? Say, that's right. I asked you for a dime for a cup of coffee and you give me half a buck. <laughs> I thought I saw your face before. Well, look. I'll arrange to give you, get you something to eat, but first I'd like to ask you a question, Mr. Uh, Savoni. John L. C. Savoni. Well, Mr. Savoni, this question sounds silly, but did you buy a sweepstakes? Did you? Did you? Did you buy a sweepstakes ticket with the money I gave you? Oh no. That would be spending the dough foolishly. Oh. Well, what did you do with the money? I bought a guide to the movie star's home. <laughs> you, you were so broke that you had to beg for money and you, and you spent it to buy a guide to the movie star's home? Well, I tell you how it happened anyway. <laughs> I was hanging around the park and I wasn't doing nothing. I was just hanging around. I didn't feel like doing anything. <laughs> I said to myself, what are you doing, John? I always call myself John. I never call myself Mr. Savoni. That's my father's name. I said I ain't doing nothing. And I wasn't. I was just hanging around the park. I was <laughs> well, I started feeding some of the penis to the pigeons. Uh-huh. I don't know why I shared my penis with the pigeons. They never shared nothing with me. <laughs> After a while, a fellow comes along. He says, Hey, you. I says, who? He says, you. I says, me? He said, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, he made me so nervous. <laughs> I said, uh, I said, uh, what do you want? He says, 
Do you want to buy a guide to the movie star's home? And I wasn't doing nothing, so I bought it. <laughs> so that's what you've been doing all day, walking around looking at the movie star's home? Yeah, and I already saw Gregory Peck, Raymond Land, and Lina Turner. Lina gave me her autograph. She did? Yeah. And while she was signing her name, she smiled at me. <laughs> Mr. Silvoli, and I'll have a man fix you something to eat. Thank you, but don't make nothing fancy. Uh, I'm in a hurry. I gotta get over to Bob Hope's house by five o'clock. Oh, are you gonna get a meal from Mr. Hope? No, I'm one of his writers. <laughs> well, look, you just wait here and I'll have some food brought to you. Wait a minute, it's four o'clock. Can I have a cocktail first? <laughs> no, no, my bar doesn't open till six. <laughs> All right, Chester. Yes, boss. There's a hungry man out in the back. Will you go in the kitchen and fix him something to eat? Yes, sir. You know, Mary, that's an amazing coincidence. It's the same man who asked me for a dime last week, and I gave him 50 cents. Rochester, what fell? The pots and pans were all out of dishes. <laughs> Come on, Dennis, let's hear the song you're gonna do. Okay. You're the end of the rainbow, my pot of gold. Your dad. Have at home a precious gem is what you are. Your mommy's bright and shining star. You're the spirit of Christmas, my star on the tree. The Easter Bunny to Mommy and me. Your sugar, your spice, your everything nice, and your daddy.
Yes, that's one of the most that's one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard. I have to hand it to you, kid. You really have a wonderful voice. Gee, thanks. And if you want me to, I'll phone Lauren Bacall and tell her. If a man answers, tell him to get out of town. <laughs> oh, stop, will you? Dennis, when I say nice things to you, I wish that you'd come in. Well, Butch and Joey. Come on in, fellas. Hello, Mr. Benny. Mary, Dennis, you know Butch and Joey of the Beverly Hills Beavers. Oh, sure. Hello, boys. Hello. What are you fellas doing here today? There's no meeting, is there? Oh, no. We just want to remind you we're having baseball practice tomorrow afternoon. Oh, yes, yes. I almost forgot. Have you boys got a baseball team? Uh Uh-huh. And Mr. Benny is our pitcher. Uh, Mr. Benny pitches for you? Sure. If he was good enough for the New York Yankees, he's good enough for us. (laughs) Jack. Jack, did you tell Quiet, Mary. By the way, boys, have you been practicing for the show you're going to do next week? Uh Uh-huh. What's this about a show? Oh, I thought I told you, Mary. It's the cutest thing. Next week, they're giving a play in the school auditorium to raise money to pay for their baseball uniforms. Well, that's nice. What play are you going to do? Tom Sawyer or Robin Hood or... No, we want to do something different, so we're going to put on one of Mr. Benny's radio programs. Really? Yes, Mary, and each one of the kids is going to play the part of a member of my cast. Say, that should be cute. Who's going to play the part of Mr. Benny? I am, Miss Livingston. I was selected because my my eyes are Robin's egg blue. (laughs) You almost needed an oil well there. Not quite as blue as mine, but they'll do, you know. And we got a girl to play your part, Miss Livingston. She's seven years old. Seven years old? Is she pretty? Uh-huh. And she'll be even prettier when her front teeth come in. <laughs> Isn't that cute, Mary? And Miss Livingston, we even got someone to play the part of your sister. Say, they're really doing everybody. Who's playing the part of my sister, babe? My brother, Herman. <laughs> I helped them cast that part. Uh, Say, Joey, have you got kids to play Phil Harris and Dennis Day? Uh Uh-huh. And we got a real butterball for Don Wilson. (laughs) Yeah, you ought to see the belly on him. Well, fellow beavers, we'll all be at the show next week, and we want to wish you a lot of luck. Well, thanks, Mr. Benny. But we came over here to get some money. Money? Well, you're our treasurer. Oh, yes, yes. We need $9 to get the programs printed and $5 for the tickets. Oh. See, that's $14. Well, wait here and I'll be back in a few minutes. I've got to go down to the vault to get the money. Excuse me, Mary. Ah, here we are. Darn it, I always forget about that barbed wire. (laughs) Oh, who goes there, friend or foe? Friend. What's the password? R-A-G-G-M-O-P-P (laughs) Miraculous. It's you, Mr. Benny. Yes, yes. How are you, Ed? Fine, fine. 
What's new on the outside world? Oh, nothing much, except that the country is thinking of admitting Hawaii and Alaska as states. My, how exciting. That'll make 37, won't it? <laughs> no, no, Ed, it'll be 50. Well, excuse me, I want to take some money out. Money out? Yes, and I may be down again tomorrow. You know, I'm having my house painted. Oh, is there a house up there now? <laughs> Now, excuse me, Ed, I want to open the safe. Shall I take another loyalty oath? No. No, Ed. Senator McCarthy hasn't mentioned you yet. <laughs> now, let's see. What's the combination? Right to 45. Left to 160. Back to 15. And left to 110. There. dollars for the program. Five, six, seven, eight, nine. There, that takes care of the programs. Now five for the tickets. I think I'll take it in silver. One, two, three, four. Oh, that's a pancake. <laughs> Here's a dollar. There, that'll do. Mr. Benny, you dropped one of the bills. Oh, yes, yes, I'll pick it up. Look, you dropped another one. How come your hands are shaking like that? I don't know, Ed, but it seems that whenever I count money, it, it makes me so nervous. <laughs> so long, Ed. Oh, my goodness, he took out $14 and went crazy. <laughs> Jack Benny is going to be with Edgar Bergen's show. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From April the 6th, 1950, that was the Jack Benny show. The name of that episode was Jack Gets His House Painted. A couple notes I made while I was listening to that. The um, painter kept referring to Jack as a rube. I was thinking there was some famous comedian that used to call everybody rube, but I, I, I can't seem to find anything online about it. The term rube apparently uh, was sort of coined in the circus, talking about, oh, somebody that was from the country that was sort of uninformed, naive. They would be an easy mark for these circus people. That's the term rube. Let me see. There was something else. Jack mentioned in there several jokes about his writers owning an oil well. And there's got to be some significance to that. Some historical thing that happened with his writers that everybody knew about. But I couldn't find anything on that either. Now, I did notice in doing some research that the Sportsman Quartet became quite successful. And they invested in a number of things, including an oil well. 
but I don't know what, which which of the writers had an oil well, or if there was some other uh, reference there to something that was a joke. And then the other note was the um, reference to the password when he went down to visit his vault, R-A-G-G-M-O-P-P. Well, it ends up that that was a very popular song at the time by the Ames Brothers, and here it is. song that was before my time but uh, certainly everybody back then that was sitting in the audience in the Jack Benny show back in 1950 was very familiar with that tune. I'm going to play one more song here and this was Jan and Arnie who a lot of people don't remember but Jan and Arnie came before Jan and Dean. I don't remember what happened to Arnie but he was replaced by Dean, and then they went on and did all the surf tunes. But Jan and Arnie, they used to perform back on the old uh, American bandstand. In fact, I can remember the one big bandstand road show that uh, I saw with my sister when I was a little kid. My parents had bought my sister and one of her close friends tickets to the Hollywood Bowl to see the traveling Dick Clark American Bandstand show. And it, it featured uh, Frankie Avalon and Annette and, oh, who else was in it? Anyway, Jan and Arnie. And this was the song that they sung on that night, probably in the late 50s, because I know I was still in elementary school. So it, it, it would have had to have been 58 or 59, maybe even 57. But here's Jan and Arnie. And this was a big hit they had with a song called Jenny Lee.
Street in Dodge City, Kansas back in the 1870s, standing up with Marshal Matt Dillon and Chester Proudfoot, going into the Long Branch to visit with Kitty. Ah, uh, yeah, time for gun smoke, everybody. Doc isn't in this one tonight, so we won't uh, have Howard McNear, but we will listen to William Conrad and Parley Bear and Georgia Ellis in this episode that was originally broadcast on July the 23rd, 1955, on CBS. This is an episode I've never played before, and it's entitled Ben Tolliver's Stud. It features Sam Edwards as Ben Tolliver. It has Eleanor Tannen as Nancy Creed, and James Nusser plays old Jake Creed in this one. James Nusser, interesting character. You might think you don't know who he is, but if you Google that name, James Nusser, N-U-S-S-E-R, and look at images, you will recognize him immediately. He played many older guys, particularly in westerns, but also in a number of other television dramas. He was in a lot of episodes of Gunsmoke, and then on the radio Gunsmoke, he was in about a hundred episodes. If nothing else, he played Moss Grimmick, but oftentimes he would also play characters that were introduced just for a single week, like Jake Creed is tonight. James Nusser, very interesting. All right, here we go, everybody, back to July of 1955, and this is Ben Tolliver Stud on Gunsmoke.
Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Sure, do hope things. Ha, ha. Mr. Dillon, are you listening to this? What? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Go on, Chester. Go on. Uh, and I sure do hope things has been good with you, like they has been with me. Take care of yourself. Maybe I will come up to see you one day soon. Your loving brother Magnuson. And down at the bottom, he says. Your Uncle Will got tromped on by a cow last week. Well, now, ain't that nice, Mr. Dillon? <laughs> what do you mean about Uncle Will? No, I mean getting this letter from Magnus. It's real thoughty of him. That's the first one I remember you getting. It's the first one he's wrote. Uh, to me, at least. Sure is funny, though. I never knew that boy could write a lick. Well, maybe he's learned since you saw him last. No, I don't think so, because Magnus don't hold with schooling. Uh-huh. No, sir, none of my kinfolk does. What my ma says all a body needs to know is how to cook, care for your own, and get to the church. Uh, she must have made your pa a very good wife. I don't know as he ever said. He ran off when I was only four. Him and ma never talked to each other you much. You're Marshal, mister. Why, yes, ma'am, that's right. I'm Nancy Creed. Well, come in, please. Uh, this Chester Proudfoot, Miss Creed. How you doing, Miss Creed? Marshal, I come to see you because my pa's going to shoot somebody dead. What? I want you should stop him. Well, who's your pa going to shoot? Fella that worked for him a spell, name of Ben Tolliver. Now, why's your pa after him? Ben run off last night and took one of pa's studs. Pa says he was just about the best stud pa ever saw. Huh. Uh, where do you and your pa live, Nancy? About 20 miles from here. Out along the Arkansas. And you think this man, this Ben Tolliver, came into Dodge, huh? I don't just think it, Marshal. I know it. So does Pa. Ben always said he was coming here. I see. So I sneaked away this morning after Pa went down the corrals to come tell you. I figure you be the fella to see, being Marshal and all. Uh, Nancy, look, if this man stole one of your pa's horses, why doesn't your pa come in here and tell me about it? He, he could swear out a warrant for Tolliver, and then I could arrest him. Pa don't want to. He says he'll take care of his own troubles. You think you can stop Pa from shooting Ben? Well, I can sure try. 
Tell me, um, what does your paw look like? Look like? Uh Uh-huh. Well, I don't know your paw, Nancy, but if I knew what he looked like, then I could watch for him, you see. I never thought about paws looking like anything, except just paw. Uh, Well, uh, for instance, how old is he? I don't know. He never said. Well, what would you guess? He's kind of gray. Then he's always looked like that. Anything else? He's got a bad leg from where a horse kicked him and his jaws busted some. Well, that don't sound like he should be hard to find. Not with a limp and a lopsided face. My gracious, even I can okay, find a man with Chester, a limp. Okay, Chester, all right. A... Uh, Nancy, I'll watch for your paw, and if he does come into Dodge, I'll have a talk with him. Huh? You do that, and I'll surely thank you, Marshal. Bye. Mm, goodbye. Say, Marshal. Yes. If it helps, Annie, I know where that Ben Tolliver is. Oh, for him. You do? Right there at the Long Branch Saloon having a beer. You know where I mean. <laughs> yes. I yeah. seen his horse tied outside, so I went up and looked through the window, and he's there right now. Well, why didn't you tell me this before, Nancy? Never thought of it. Well, you'll do something about Pa now, won't you, Marshal? I declare she don't know get up from whole, does she, Mr. Dillon? She's kindly pretty, but my gracious... Come on, Chester. Let's go have a talk with Ben Tolliver and find out what this is all about. Sure didn't have no hankering to come with us. And I think she was afraid we might run into her paw. She sure lit out for home fast enough. She just ain't very bright, is she, Mr. Dillon? Ah, she seems to know right from wrong, Chester. That's more than some people. Yes, sir. You want me to come in with you? Uh, yeah, but uh, stay by the door while I talk to Tolliver, huh? How are you going to know which one's him? Well, there won't be more than three or four people in there this time of day. You reckon that's him sitting at the table over there? Well, it could be. Has your name Ben Tolliver? That's right. My name's Dillon. I'm a marshal here in Dodge. Do you mind if I sit on? Please yourself. Yeah, thank you. Uh, girl named Nancy Creed came into my office a little while ago. What'd she want? Uh, she says that her pa's looking for you. Oh? Says he's going to shoot you. Shoot me? Yeah, he claims that you stole one of his horses. Is that right? He owed me four months' wages, and he wouldn't pay me. So I took a stud horse that broke. Was it your horse? I figured I had something coming. You can't take a horse that belongs to somebody else, no matter what you figure. Look, mister, I caught that stud horse when he was running wild out on the range. I brought him into old Creed's place and broke him myself. I put three months' work into that stud, and on my own time of an evening. Creed says it was his horse, and you stole him. No such thing. Besides, he said he'd pay me $30 a month, then he threw me out without a penny. 
Now, the girl didn't tell me anything about paid being due you? Nancy wouldn't know about it anyway. Her pa don't tell her nothing. She just keeps the place redded up and cooks firm and the like. Well, come on, Ben. Come on where? I'm going to take you to jail. Jail? What are you putting me in jail for? And if what Nancy says is true, Creed's coming in to look for you. Putting you in jail's the best way I know of to stop a fight. But I ain't done nothing wrong, Marshal. Not the way I see it. You'll only be in jail till I get this straightened out. Later this afternoon, I'm going to ride out and have a talk with Creed. Before he decides to come into town. It sure is hot out here, ain't it? There ain't a speck of shade for miles around. Well, if he's breaking wild horses out here, he doesn't have time to worry about the heat. I wonder if that fellow Ben Tolliver was telling the truth. Yeah, there's no way of knowing until we talk to the old man. No, sir, I guess he ain't. Say, he's got some pretty good-looking stock down them pens, ain't he? Yeah, there's good stock running wild on the prairie. If a man knows how to catch him, he can make out fine. Well, we better leave our horses here, Chester. All right, sir. Don't be banging on the door. I seen you coming. You, Jake Creed? That's right. Well, I want to talk to you, Creed. Who are you, mister? Marshal Dillon from Dodge. Cooler out there than in the house. I'll come out. What is it you want? I want to know about Ben Tolliver. <laughs> that fool Nancy run the dodge and told you, huh? Yeah, that's right. Well, since you did, I won't try to fool you. That boy stole a horse of mine. I figure in a couple of days I'll go after him. Go after him? Find him and shoot him. Now look, Creed, you just can't shoot a man down. Why not? He's a horse thief. If you want to swear out a complaint, I'll hold him for trial. I ain't got time for all that foolishness. He stole a horse, so I got cause to shoot him. Now you listen to me, Creed. I don't have to listen to nobody. Being a marshal, you're all filled up with laws. But I ain't got time to mess with that. I'll just shoot him. Creed, either you come into Dodge and swear out a complaint against Tolliver, or you forget about the whole thing. I got better than 40 range horses out here, only half broke. I can't be wasting time fooling around with no trial. Did you owe that boy money? Of course not. Everything he did, I had to show him how. The way I see it, he should have paid me. He worked out here for you for four months, right? You could say that. Well, he told me that that stud horse was his. Well, since he caught him and broke him, I guess he'd figure it that way. But Ben was working on my place and taking my food. That stud's mine. Now, the law might not agree with you, Creed. I know that, Marshal. That's just why I'm going to handle my own trouble and not mess around with the law. Look, I've tried to tell you, Creed, and I'm going to tell you once more real plain. You shoot that boy and you'll hang for it. I don't care what you think the right of it is. All right, come on, Chester. 
maybe I won't shoot him. Maybe I'll fix that boy good some other way. <laughs> him and that stud horse he's so proud of. Miserable old buffalo is as mean as acre snakes, ain't he? Yeah. What are you going to do, Mr. Dillon? Well, I can't keep Ben Tolliver in jail forever if Creed won't swear out a complaint. No, sir. I just have to turn him loose in the morning and hope they don't run into each other. Maybe you could run Tolliver out of town. That nah, wouldn't do any good. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. Now, nah, let's move along. We got a lot of ground to cover. Come on. You're free now, Ben. Thanks, Marshal. Being in jail overnight makes a fella kind of archy. Yeah, well, I'm sorry about that. I I did it to save trouble. I know, Marshal. I don't blame you none. What you gonna do now, Ben? Well, Chester, I thought maybe I could find myself a job of work somewhere. Yeah, what kind of work? All I know is horses. There ought to be some spread near here that could use a hand. Well, if there's anybody looking for a hired hand, Sam, down at the Long Branch, you'd know about it. He's the bartender there. I'll tell you what, I'll walk down with you if you like, Ben. Oh, thanks, Marshal. Uh, I... Oh, yeah. Mr. Dillon? Uh, yeah, yeah, what is it, Chester? You could just have a beer while you're down there talking. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay, Chester, you, you can come along, too. Come on. <laughs> Thank you. Say, Mr. Dillon... That was a good idea. I'm glad you thought of it. Well, thank you, Chester. <laughs> now, where are you from, Ben? California. No. California? What are you doing in Kansas? This is the cow country, Marshal. California just don't have the spreads. Yeah, but all that gold out there. The gold rush was 20 years ago, Chester. Well, I know that, but there might just be a little left laying around. <laughs> I sure didn't find any, Chester. Oh, maybe you didn't know where to look. All I want is to have my own piece of land, raise good stock, maybe get me a wife. I might even go on up to Wyoming sometime. I hear that's good cattle country, too. Well, I don't see Sam no words. No. But here comes Miss Kitty. Oh, Miss Chester. Oh, Miss Kitty. hello, Kitty. Uh, oh, Kitty, this huh? is uh, Ben Tolliver. Pleased to meet you, Kitty. Uh, we came down to talk to Sam. And have some beer. Well, I can get you the beer, Chester, but Sam's down at the depot with a wagon. Oh. Shipment of rye whiskey's coming in on the Santa Fe this morning. Oh, I see. Uh, you're up kind of early, aren't you? Uh, Sam asked me to take care of things till I got back. I can sleep this afternoon. Come over to the bar. I'll get you some beer. Okay. My, you, you make a pretty fancy bartender, Miss Kitty. Well, a girl's got to have an ace up her sleeve, Chester. Yeah, but... What? Uh, never mind, Chester. Well, what are you doing in the saloon this early? Well, we come down to ask Sam if he'd heard about anybody needing a hand. Yeah, you see, Ben here is looking for a job. Oh, what sort of job, Ben? On a ranch somewhere, Miss Kitty. You work around stock much? All my life. Just about. Yeah, you see, he was working for Jake Creed up until yesterday. Jake Creed? Uh, 
Yeah. You, you know him? I know about him. Only a few months back, some cowboy was giving me a half a dozen reasons why I ought to kill him. Hmm, he must have been the fellow Jake threw out just before I come along. You probably stayed with him about three, four months. Is that right? Yes, sir. Then he started some argument. You had a fight, and he threw you out? That's about the right of it. And no pay into the bargain. Honestly, Matt, I don't know how Creed gets away with it. Well, I guess there's always somebody new drifting by who doesn't know his reputation. What did you argue about, Ben? Oh, a little bit of everything, Miss Kitty. But mostly on how to rope. How to rope? Yeah. He says when you're working stock, the only way is to tie hard and fast and not dally. Well, I sure couldn't argue that. <laughs> no, Kitty, you see, hard and fast means that you tie the end of your rope to the saddle horn, you see. Uh. And when you dally, you just hold the end of the rope in your hand and twist it around the horn a couple of times. That's right. That way, if the rope gets tangled up in your mount's legs or yours, you let go and you're free. There ain't no way to get dragged if you dally. You mean old Creed don't believe in dallying? Well, no, ma'am. Oh. Well, most of the fellows don't think it amounts to much, but they do some in California. Uh-huh. Well, they sure don't in Texas. Creed says that nobody who knows anything about working stock could ever rope anyway except hard and fast. I'm glad I make a living in here. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds complicated, I guess, Miss Kitty, uh-huh. but it ain't to a horseman. Well, no matter what the argument was about, he should have paid you, Ben. Oh, um, Ben, uh, you got any money at all? No, sir. Here, I'll give you $5, and you can pay me back when you make it, huh? Thanks, Marshal. Well, as long as you're paying, don't forget the beer, Marshal. Oh, yeah, sure. Here you are. Thank you. Yeah, Sam won't have to worry about his bar, not with you behind it, Kitty. This bar pays a good part of my salary. Uh, Marshal, I think maybe I'd better go down and have a look at my horse. Uh, Make sure he's been watered this morning. Oh, Marshal, would take good care of him, man. Well, I think maybe I'll just walk down there anyway. Uh, can I go with you? I'd like to see your horse. Sure. Uh, ben, you come back later this afternoon. Sam will be here then. We can talk about a job for you. Well, thank you, Miss Kitty. He seems like a nice young fellow, Matt. Yeah. What's the matter? I was thinking about Jake Creed, Kitty. What about him? Now, he's got something on his mind. He'll try to get to Ben Tolliver's some way. In the next three or four days, there was no sign of Jake Creed around town. And I began to breathe easier. Ben came in one morning and said that he'd found a job out at the Walker place and that he was going to start the next day. And I was glad for him. But then trouble came. Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what is it, Chester? Mr. Dillon, he's gone. Well, who's gone? Ben Tolliver. He took a horse from Moss Grimmish and he's headed out for the Creed place. He says he's going to kill him. Oh, what for? What's it all about? Well, this morning I walked down to the stable with Ben to kind of say goodbye like, and that's when we saw it. Oh, doggone it, that poor old stud. So what, Chester? Moss told us he'd seen old man Creed out and back by the crowd, but he didn't think too much of it. Chester, what happened? That mean old devil hamstrung Ben Stud, Mr. Dillon. Hamstrung him? He cut both hind legs. Oh, that horse couldn't budge an inch out of his tracks. Ben just stood there real stony-like, looking at the stud, and 
then he shot him. He didn't say a word, he just turned and walked away with a funny kind of a look on his face. All right, come on, Chester. We'll ride out to the Creed place before Ben does something he'll be sorry for. Marshall. Is your pa here, Nancy? No, he's down the catch pens. It ain't time to eat, so he's working. Uh-huh. Nancy, uh, have you seen Ben Tolliver? Sure did. He rode up here a few minutes ago, wanted to see pa. I told him pa was down the corrals. He just went down there. Come on, Chester. Well, if you're going down to talk to pa, I'll go with you. He goes down to the corrals for sunup and don't come back till time for dinner. What you want Pa for, Marshal? To keep him from getting killed. Who'd kill Pa? You don't... That came from the corrals. Come on, let's go. Mr. Dillon, look. Out there in the middle of that catch pan. All right, Tolliver. Hold it right there. I ain't moving. All right, give me your gun. What for? You're under arrest, and this time you'll stay in jail. Ben, why'd you shoot my pa? I didn't, Nancy. Well, then who did shoot him? Nobody shot him, Marshal. I'm trying to tell you. Jake was already dead when I got here. It was a horse I shot. What? See for yourself. Looks to me like Jake's horse got tangled up in the rope while he was working a Mustang. The horse got throwed and Jake was trapped under him. And the Mustang drug them both. It killed Jake. His horse had two legs broke, so I shot him. That's what you heard. Huh? Looks like you're telling the truth, Ben. I am, Marshal. Poor old Pa. I always told Jake he shouldn't work wild horses alone. He ought to have somebody snub for him. Pa always did have a mind of his own. He sure did. That old devil. You should be glad he did, Ben. It saved you from hanging. Produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The special music for Gunsmoke was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. 
Featured in the cast were Sam Edwards, Eleanor Tannen, and James Nusser. Harley Bear is Chester, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Remember, listen again next week for another transcribed story of the Western Frontier when Matt Dillon, Chester Proudfoot, Doc, and Kitty, together with all the other hard-living citizens of Dodge, will be with you once more. It's America growing west in the 1870s. It's Gunsmoke, brought to you by L&M Filters. July the 23rd, 1955. That was Gunsmoke, and the name of that episode was Ben Tolliver's Stud. Well, we're just about out of time, so let's uh, put all the shows back in the vault and lock things up until next time. That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Well, no reason to be sad, though, because we're going to be back in two weeks. We're going to do it all over again. So just hang in there, okay? Just hang in there. Hey, I got a really nice email. Uh, It was sent to Bill Bragg at Yesterday USA, and he was kind enough to send it on to me. And it's from T.J. Lind. It's like it's maybe Taylor. Well, at any rate... Taylor writes, just wish to thank Bob Bro for his DJ skills, hard work, and super shows. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it goes on to say, I was born in 1970 in Red Lodge, Montana, to the son of the boomer generation's Stan Lind, a cartoonist who created and produced the top-notch western strip Ricochet and Hip Shot. And I used to read that strip every day. So that was really cool. Uh, he introduced me to CBS Radio Mystery Theater on Friday nights, and we would pop popcorn and sit on the studio couch, and from then on I was hooked. We both were fans of Gunsmoke on TV, and later I would find those anew through the radio programs and the preservation work that you guys do. They are a delight, and in the memory of my dad, thanks for both of us. How cool is that? You know, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a syndicated cartoonist. That was my dream. My dream. I I don't think I was probably talented enough artistic-wise. Anyway, that'd be good fodder for a story for another week. Maybe we'll do that next time. But thank you very much, Taylor, for your very nice comments. They really meant a lot to me. I can't tell you. I really did read your dad's strip 
every day, and I, I can still picture the, uh, the artwork. And it was really one of my favorite strips, so that really meant a lot. All right, everybody, this, that's all the time we have. This is Bob Bro. I'm so glad you stopped by, and I am so glad you met me. Your lips would find another And your heart would go astray I thought that I could hold you With all my many charms But then one day you ricocheted To someone else's arms And baby, I don't want a ricochet romance I don't want a ricochet love If you're careless with your kisses Find another turtle dove I can't live on ricochet romance No, no, not me If you're gonna ricochet, baby I'm gonna set you free I knew the day I met you You had a roving eye I thought that I could hold you What a fool I was to try Never stray Then like a rifle bullet You began to ricochet And baby, I don't want a ricochet romance I don't want a ricochet love If you're careless with your kisses Find another turtle dove I can't live on ricochet romance No, no, no